0: We've been talking about things that Jesus said that changed how people saw the world in our series, What He Just Say. Last week, we talked about love your enemies. And how many of y'all know that it's fun when your spouse reminds you of something that you should know better on, Right? So this last week, something happened, I don't remember what it was, but I, I think I was driving and someone ticked me off, and so I got a little short with, my, my wife reminded me, said, Steve, remember you preached last week? And I was like, oh, thank you, sweetie, all right, you know, I'm not sure what to do about that, but, but no, you know, Jesus' words have to change how we see the world, don't they? They have to change things for us. It's important and important. So last week was love your enemies. It was a challenging thing for us. If you weren't here, listen online. It's there on our website. And this week, uh, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, we're going to talk about one of the more famous, more well-known things that Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, if you don't have your Bibles today, it'll be up on the screen here in a moment, but he said this, he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, now that's an interesting thing, isn't it? How can salt become no longer salt? Uh, Tune in in a few weeks, we're going to really dive deep into that part, but today we're focusing on you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Again, this is one of the more, more well-known things that Jesus said. Uh, this has is, this is started people, of, of say, there's sayings that people talk about this. You know, you, you go to a town of, of blue-collar people, people will say, those are good people, they're salt-of-the-earth kind of people, Right? You know, it started a lot of those kind of things. I I like salt. I I do. When I was growing up, my grandma liked salt a lot more than I did. And I remember my grandma just dumping the salt on stuff when we were kids. And I was okay with that because I liked it. And I like salt more now because in our family, we've discovered a wonderful pink blessing called Himalayan pink salt. Come on now. Someone celebrate. Now, I mean, yeah, now City's back to getting, she's I mean, she's she's got it right there. Yeah, no, it is so good. Now, here's the deal is it's more expensive. You go to, you buy it at Costco, so you know it's more money because it's giant and huge, but it's okay, it's worth it. It's so much better. Uh, it's better for you. I think it tastes better. It's more fun because it comes in this little thing that you, 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 you turn and the, it, it, it crackles it out and it comes out the bottom. My girls like it. And so since we discovered Himalayan rock salt, we're just way happier in our, our family. But, but salt's not new, is it? It's Been around since we can remember. Salt has always been a part of culture, uh, going way back. But what's fascinating is the difference that salt means to us today than it has for most of history. For most of history, salt's meant something different than today. Today, salt is for flavor, isn't it? When I'm having corn or I'm having something, I say pass the salt. And nowadays, it's pass the Himalayan pink rock salt. Uh, That's very important. So that's what it is today. But for most, most of history, salt was first considered for its preservative qualities. So when Jesus says these words, when he says, you are the salt of the earth. He is saying something remarkable. He's saying something for these people who many of them are, again, they're, they're just lowly Jews. They're lowly Jews in a Roman culture that did not see them as valuable or see them as, as anything. They struggled. It was illegal to be a Christian. They, I mean, it was just a tough thing. So when he says this to them, he's saying something absolutely remarkable to them. And to really get that meaning, we're going to go way back, and we're going to look at the book of, of Genesis, and we're going to find a city named Sodom. Now, how many of y'all before have heard of Sodom? Just put your hand in the air if you've heard of Sodom. How many of y'all now are a little nervous where we're going today, because you know what Sodom is, right? I mean, it's pretty famous, isn't it? Or shall I say, Sodom is infamous. And Sodom is a real, was a real city. Uh, it's, it's fascinating, when you look at, at archaeological digs and such, and world history, and I'm a nerd, so I love world history, and some of you guys are like, oh, here we go. Yes, I love it. It's so good. And, and so, Sodom was a real city, and it has been excavated and found under the south edge of the Dead Sea, or, as it was known in those days, the Salt Sea, which I think is pretty ironic, And so it was actually part of a a string of five communities, five cities. One of those cities was the slightly lesser-known city of Gomorrah. And you had other cities, too, around the bottom edge of of the the, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. And these five cities had a very similar uh, culture and a very similar feel about them. To be honest with you, they were kind of like a country club. You know, they were for the rich and beautiful and famous, just like Monticello and Big Lake, right? I mean, just like a, right, right here, the beautiful, rich and famous lived there in, in that part of the world, and, and people were extravagantly wealthy in this part of the of the of the world. Sodom was the crown jewel of these five cities. It was this, this, this beautiful place, it was lovely, it was glorious, you, you wanted to be a part of this, this club, this, this culture, and they didn't want anyone who wasn't like them to be a part of them if they weren't beautiful, rich, or well-known. And so what happened was, was this city, they enacted laws to ensure that would continue to happen. Now in our day and age, we hear what we're about to hear and think, No way! That could happen. That is some messed up stuff, and it was. These people were insane. The year was 2000 BC, and it was a much different place. The world didn't have the Bible, we didn't have the, 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 didn't have the Jewish law, there wasn't really any sort of, of, of well-known standard for living and, and being, and so people lived according to their, their desires, according to their, 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 their hearts, I mean, their decency, that's how they lived. Unless you lived in Sodom or Gomorrah. It was a much different story in in this place. And so they passed laws that allowed the Sodomites to do whatever they wanted to do to keep people scared and keep people out of their community that wasn't anyone like them. They they passed some crazy laws. Uh, And that meant by law you could enslave, rape, kill, whatever you wanted to do to somebody who wasn't one of us. And if you showed up and you didn't fit the bill, uh, that was probably your heritage. One of the Jewish rabbinical writings about Sodom, because it's not just found in the Bible, it's found in other places in the world, uh, as far as there's writings, writes this about a law, this is an actual law from Sodom. It says, Everyone who strengthens the hand of the poor or needy with a loaf of bread shall be burnt with fire. Now imagine, you're walking down the street and, and, and you're gonna, you see a, someone who needs help, so you help them, and a cop comes and says, hey, buddy, you're gonna be burnt by the stake because you helped that lady across the street, right? I mean, to, to be kind or to be generous or be benevolent in this city was literally a crime. It was not allowed. One story of, of Sodom, uh, goes like this. It was a, 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 a poor man who somehow uh, was able to live in the shadows of Sodom and so he, he was poor, he didn't have anything and so a, a Sodomite woman who was, who was wealthy and, and such had pity on him which didn't happen very often but she did and so what she did is she gave him a pot uh, that matched her water pot and she told, her t- told him to meet her at the well every day. And of course, in those days, rich or not, you still had to go get water. And so if you're, especially if you're you're a lady, that's a whole other thing. But so she's going down to get water at the well, and she met this man who had a pot matching hers. And when he saw her, he would dip his pot in the well and pull it up, and they would exchange pots. Now, onlookers thought that what was happening is this woman had enslaved this man to do his, to, to basically draw water for her, which was totally okay and encouraged But what she was actually doing was she had put flour and salt and some things down at the bottom of her pot. And when she brought it to him in the morning, she received from him water and she gave him the ingredients to make breads. So he was able to live like that for a period of time. And when it was found out what she was doing, they killed the guy and then they brought her out to the gates of, of, of Sodom, they tied her to the wall, they covered her in honey, and they let the elements take over as they would. That was the nature of Sodom. It, it, this is another story. They, the Sodom had, in the middle of a the city, they had a, 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 a house. It was a, a, a building that housed beds. And it was for travelers. And this was not uncommon in those times. And still in places in the world it's not uncommon that cities will build uh, buildings, bunkhouses in in their town square for people who are traveling through to stop and to be able to sleep. It keeps them off the streets and it puts them in this bunkhouse. It's similar to a a homeless shelter or whatever, but in these days it could have been businessmen, it could have been uh, anybody who would have traveled through would have stayed in this this little place. Uh, Sodom had one of these places like Maytown's did but what was different about Sodom's place was in the middle of the night it was scheduled that Sodom men would come out and would go to this bunkhouse and if you happened to be in there they could it was open season on the person in that place. It was Open season. Anything goes. And that was done so that they could enact some fear and anxiety in people. And it was done because they were just that awful. That's the culture that Sodom was. It was a terrible place. It was this culture as bad as it could get. Now, the reason we're talking about Sodom today uh, is because a a resident who lived in Sodom was a famous person who was the nephew of a more famous person. Uh, Lot lived in Sodom and who was the nephew of Abraham. You go back to Genesis chapter 13, Lot and Abraham had become fabulously wealthy. So much so that the land could no longer sustain them. Can you imagine being so rich that you can't, your your land can't even handle you anymore? You know, you're like, I gotta move because I got so much money and resources. I gotta get out of here because they just can't handle me anymore. And that's what's happened here in this moment. Lot and Abraham had become wealthy. So they decided it's time for them to part ways. And so they they did and, and they said, well, let's look where we're going. And so Lot looked down the valley. They're on the top of a, of a, of a hill country. It's high. There's, you can see for miles at this spot, supposedly. And so Lot looks down towards the, 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 the Dead Sea Valley, the south end of the, of, the, of the valley, and sees these five cities and sees Gomorrah, kind of I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, shimmering in the middle and says, that's where I'm going to go. It was fertile. It was beautiful. It was a club. It was awesome at this point. Lot could have gone there and would have fit in, and so he says, "That's where I'm going." And so Lot moves his family; he moves everything he owns down to the city of Sodom and so- settles there, while Abraham stays up in the hill country, which was a little less uh, 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 exuberant, but uh, was a little better to be a, a better place to be. And that's a whole other uh, message in and of itself. And so, so here we have this guy who's living in Sodom. And then there's Abraham who's up in the hill country. And let's look at Genesis chapter 18 here this morning because there's a principle in this story that emerges that we really have to see that sheds light on Jesus' teaching when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the the great trees of Mamre while he was still sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed to the ground. Now, these were not ordinary men, okay? These were, they were nomads. At this point, we don't know their nature yet, uh, but Abraham, I think, did because of what he, how he reacts to them. And so he brings them into his home, and Abraham says, guys, come on in. We'll make you some food. You can sleep. Here tonight, and you can hang out, and we, we want you to be here with us tonight. So these guys say, okay, they, they stay with Abraham, and, and and as they're after they're eating their dinner, uh, they say something really crazy to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Uh, Bible says she's off in the distance, listening in a tent, and they say, Abraham, you know you're like a hundred-year-old wife. She's still got it. If you know what I'm talking about, she's going to have a baby. And it's going to be great. And Abraham hears this. And Sarah hears this. And of course we know Sarah stops laughing. Which, you know, is a pretty, pretty realistic thing, right? I mean, you know, you can imagine if you're 100 years old and someone says you're going to have a baby, that's pretty crazy, right? Now that's not the story, but that's like the context. You kind of know where, where we are here. And, and so it's clear these are not ordinary men. So we skip down to verse 16. When the men got up to leave... They looked down towards Sodom, as Lot did not long before this. We don't know how long, but at some point. And Abraham walked along with them as they left on their way. He walked them out, basically. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, Abraham is a righteous man. He's lived right. He's lived faithfully. And so he's about to get some insider information. And that's pretty great, right? You know, when you— You're about to get some inside information. It's pretty cool. He knows this is about to happen here. He knows something's coming. And so, verse 20 the Lord said, The outcry, everyone say outcry. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will come down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, that word outcry there is an interesting word. It's found elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it's found in places where the sin of the people has become so terrible, so awful, that it's like the people cry out to God under the distress of their sin or the distress of this terribleness, and God says, It's time for me to act. This happened as well in Exodus three nine. It says, "Now indeed the outcry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen how the Egyptians are oppressing them." There's other places too in the Bible in the Old Testament where this same word is, is used. That this outcry here, and it's it's not that God didn't all of a sudden didn't hear before, and now he did. Right? It's not like God was like, "Man, I didn't know what was going on." I mean, all all of a sudden they're loud enough, and I can hear them. No. God knows, God sees, but it's like all of a sudden this point comes in which it forces God to have to do something and act. A moment arises, a moment comes where God in his mercy and in his grace hears the outcry of the people and says, it is time for me to put an end to this. And that's the place at which Sodom and Gomorrah are at this moment, And so the men turned away, and they went down towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached God and said, and so Abraham bargained with God, basically, and he said, God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham does a wonderfully wise thing and lays a guilt trip on God. Uh, Not wise. I'm just kidding. That's not a wise thing to do. That's... Pretty foolish, and Abraham was no fool, but sometimes he was foolish, right? Just like you, sometimes you're no fool, but sometimes you're foolish. In this moment here, I think God was using Abraham's foolishness to put an exclamation on a point that is illustrated in Matthew chapter five. Verse 24, Abraham says, God, what if there are 50 people who are righteous in that city? 50 people. Now again, Abraham knows what's going on here. He knows who these dudes are. He knows what's about to take place. He knows they're going, and he knows why they're going there, right? He also knows that that down there is his home of his nephew, whom he loves. And so Abraham bargains with God, will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? God, far be it from you to do such a thing. Now I want to pause here for a perspective for a moment. The the city of of Sodom at this point in history, or it's at the end of it anyway, which is not far after this, uh, they find that uh, archeologists have found that there is between 800 and 1,200 people in this city at this point. Again, this is no ordinary city. This is a country club. Think Monticello. No, it's a country club. It's beautiful. It's luxurious. It's awesome. And so they have found just remains of the most breathtakingly beautiful things that, 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 this, that this, this period of time could offer. There's about 1,200 people. So let's say for the sake of math, because I'm a pastor, not a mathematician, there's a 1,000 people in this city at this point. So Abraham says, God, there's a 1,000 people down there. Will you hold off For the sake of the 50 righteous, will you hold off what the 950 people deserve for the sake of those few who are righteous? And here we discover something about God. We discover something here about God, and I I want you to, to see this this morning. Abraham appeals to God as judge. There are those that would say today that God is all grace God is all mercy and no judgment. That is simply not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, it's clear that he's a God of judgment. He's a God of of retribution. He does these. But he's also a God of grace and mercy. He is able to stand firmly placed with one foot on judgment and one foot on grace. Let's see if you can see what he does right here. Abraham goes a little deeper, verse 27. Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to God, he probably realized, well, wow, I got away with this. You know, I just did that. And, I mean, that's pretty good. I'm going to go a little deeper. He said, Abraham, he said, God, okay, what if, would, you just, would, you, would you judge for just five more? What if, God, uh, uh, nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is less than 50? We destroy the whole city for the lack of five people. And God says, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. Abraham should have been feeling pretty good at this point, but he continues from, you know, 40, and he says the same thing about 30, and the same thing about about 20, and this whole whole thing, he goes through the whole process, and, and then he gets down in verse 32, when he says, may the Lord not be angry. But let me speak just one more time. What if only 10 can be found there? And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Now, Abraham sounds like my kids right here, okay? Like we're having dinner, and, my, and we have like, they have like 10 beans on their plate. Daddy, if I have 10 beans, can I have a, cake, a piece of cake? 10 beans, Daddy. Can I hear 10 beans, Dad? 10, 10 beans. You know, that's what they do, and, and so they're my kids. And so Daddy can have 10 beans, so I'm like, yes, okay, fine. 10 beans, eat 10 beans, you can have some cake, and so then, you know, my little girls, the innocent little girls, get their ID in their mind. How about eight beans, Daddy? What if I just have eight beans? You know, eight beans, do I hear eight beans? Eight beans, eight beans, how many? You know, sure, You eight beans, fine. You can have eight beans, you can eat your cake, and then they get, you know, the doors open. How about five beans, Daddy? Five beans. Do I hear five beans? And so, usually at this point, they'll be sweet and innocent and, and, and give me the little look of their eyes like this. Daddy, can I have, you know, five beans? You know what? That's more than you usually eat. Okay, five beans, the cake is yours. And then it continue until it reaches a point where I say, okay, guess what? You just lost it, and now you're eating all 10 beans. It's going to happen. So that's kind of what's going on here in this, in this moment. And, and, and God, if I can get it down, if it gets down to 10 people, if there are 990 people that are absolutely just like I described in those stories a few minutes ago, there's 990 of those. But if there's 10 people in that city who are righteous, what will you do? And we learn something about the nature of, of God. You see, first, you can bargain with God if your name's Abraham, but mine's Steve, so I can't. But, but, but seriously, though, we're, we're learning here that God is not rushing to punish and judge sin. He's not rushing to pronounce judgment. That He's not running to do this with anger and retribute. He's not doing this. He's willing to hold off judgment for the sake of a few righteous people. You see, here's the point today, that righteousness preserves the unrighteous. Righteousness preserves the unrighteous. God didn't need Abraham to, like, convince him to how many. God knew what he was doing. God didn't change his nature as Abraham went from 50 down to 10. God used Abraham's foolishness and his lack of knowledge to reveal to him and reveal to all of mankind a principle about God. He's not rushing to bring judgment. But judgment will come when the outcry is heard. Judgment will come when the outcry is heard. But as long as there are those that are righteous or right, God is willing to stay off judgment. Let's let's move on here to, to, to chapter 19. And we find in 19 as it begins, and I'm not going to read the details because frankly, if I did, we'd have to rate my message uh, rated not PG this morning. So I'm not going to read the details today. But we find here this morning is there are angelic beings. We now discover those men that Abraham talked before are that, they arrive at the gates of Sodom, they sit there, they get there, and there's Lot sitting at the seat of honor and, and, and power at the gates of Sodom. The, the gates were a place where the most wealthy, the most powerful, the most trusted, the, mo, the, the, the leaders of a city would have been, and there sits Lot. And again, that's the whole subject in and of itself. Lot shouldn't have been there. Lot should not have been sitting in this spot. Lot didn't have to go here. There, lot could have gone a lot of other places, but Lot shows here. And now not only is Lot sitting here he, in the wrong spot, he's at the place of leadership, of this culture, of this place. And so now we find that, there, that Lot is sitting here in this spot, and Lot sees these guys, and now knowing the context of what you know about Sodom now, Lot says, guys, stay in my house tonight. I'll feed you, I will give you shelter, stay in my place. But look at what it says as as this chapter opens. It says these guys said, no, we want to stay the night in the square. Now you know context, and so that's pretty important, isn't it? And so Lot says, "Uh, dudes, I don't think you want to do that. I'm telling you the truth, don't go there. Reconsider, stay at my house, it'll be so much safer. And so he urged them to stay in his home, and he, they did, and they fed him. And then something so awful, so sad, so bewildering, so revealing of this perverse culture happens. It says, the Bible says, that these men of, of Sodom, young and old, came knocking at Lot's door. They were not the welcome crew. If they were, that's not the kind that I want. So they, they say, bring the men out so we can do with them as we please. We want to take from them and give nothing in return. We want to take, 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 and take. We want to treat them as we want. Bring them out. And Lot says, uh-uh. They're my guests. They're my, they're my issue. They're in my home. I'm feeding them. I'm sheltering them. You can't have them. And then again, Lot does something so also so sad. He reveals and, and shows why he should not have been in his place in the beginning. And Lot begins to bargain with these guys and says, you can't have the men, but I have daughters. I will send those to you. You can do with them whatever you want. Man, I read this. I think, how in the world? What could happen? But there's nothing nothing like the power of a perverse culture to change how you view and see the world. Lot had been a man of faith, had been a man of righteousness, a man of truth, a man of goodness. God had blessed him immensely. God had done wonderful things in his life. And now he's here, and sitting here, and he is at this spot, perhaps the lowest of the low of the low. I can't possibly imagine what it would take for me to think like that. It seems to be as bad as as it could get. But then it gets worse, and this city, the men said, we don't want your daughters, we want these guys. And so they said, bring them out to us. Lot, you know how this works. You know, you are a foreigner, Lot's. You get it, you know, bring them out to us. And, and they said, if we have to, we'll knock the doors down. And when all else seemed to be the worst it could possibly be, when Lot probably could have said, oh, man, what have I gotten myself into? How is this going to happen? What's going to be here? Remember, these guys are here because of the outcry of the people. They are not ordinary men. God sent them here for a purpose and for a reason. And these guys, the word says, they enacted a miracle and caused confusion and blindness in the city. And then they say this to Lot. They say in in verse 12 of 19, they say, The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? Sons in laws, daughters, uh, sons, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out. Because we're going to destroy this place. Here's the word again. The outcry to the Lord against his, its people is so great that he sent us here to destroy it. Now, you'd think by this time that anyone with half a, a shred of sense would say, yes, get me out of here. But if you read on there, you know that's not the case. You see, lot goes to his sons-in-law who should have known better, who had been influenced by Lot, hopefully, in some well, and, and Lot says, hey, it's going down, things are going to happen, let's get out of here, and the guys say no, they say, we want to stay. Again, this is the pinnacle of society. Sodom is beautiful, Sodom is, is a club. Why would we want to leave this place? We can't leave out of here. We can't go. And so what the Bible says is that Lot grabs his wife, his daughters, and his sons and runs out of there. And of course, Lot stops for a moment. So these men grab their hands. They bring them out. And you know the story that Lot's wife turns around, turns into a, a pillar of salt. And it's, it's a pretty crazy scene as they see fire raining down from the heavens upon this city and ruining it in an instant. Because God sent these men to come and pronounce judgment. And it's interesting in excavating parts of these cities. And this is the truth. You can, you can Google this, it's, it's out there. Um, modern archaeologists, and this is modern, like this is in our, our time, have discovered this strange asphalt like substance. That is only found over this area of these five cities. It's, it's true. They they actually call it uh, they call it sulfur balls. And, and what it is is it's these the stuff and it balls around and it covers and coats like a ball. It covers things and it's a thin layer of this asphalt substance that covers everything where Sodom and Gomorrah and these five cities would have been. And it's it's astounded. Modern archaeologists, well, it doesn't astound us, right? God has given in his word incredible insight that not only is his word true, but we got to listen up to what, what his word tells us. The outcry came. God sent help, and, and God had had enough. What's the implication here this, this morning? There's many implications in this story. What is Where are we at today with this? Number one, God judges sin. You have to hear that, that God judges sin. God is bringing and will bring and, and will bring soon judgment upon the earth for sin. It is, it is not possible for him to not do this. But here's the deal for a lot of us as believers. Our interaction and understanding of this is kind of warped and backwards. Because we think you better be careful because God's going to bring judgment on you. You're wrong, you do this, you do this, you better walk it out because God's bringing judgment. This entire story reveals something deeper about God's judgment. It's coming, it will be here, it comes as the outcries people against sin and the effects and the destructive nature of sin. You think you can live in sin and not be ruined, it's not true. Lot is, 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 is shows this. For Lot to be in this very spot, in very moments, Lot had to have his life affected and his life changed and his life morphed by this culture, this sick culture that he was in. God knows this. God's bringing judgment on the planet. But our reaction is not, look at the judgment that's coming. It's going to be there, and you better get ready for it. So often, our understanding of judgment is a finger point to those who are going to receive the judgment that's not the nature of God the story reveals that this morning see because from from God's perspective the presence of even a little righteousness in in a region or an area goes a long way now I, I don't mean little righteousness in us if those that are righteous in the word, you say, Well, righteous is a churchy word. It's, it certainly is. We don't use that. You don't walk on the street and say, You know what? I'm feeling pretty righteous today. You don't, you don't talk like that. Uh, but the word righteous is simply a word that the Bible uses to describe those who are in right standing with God, in a place of, of right standing. Abraham received information because he was in a right standing. God had grace and mercy on Lot who, was, who missed the mark, who missed it, but God's grace and mercy went down to that place of sin and warned him and tried to bring him out of that spot because God is a grace, a God who judges, but also a God of grace and mercy, so he brings them down there in this, this moment. God's, God's perspective, the presence of even a little righteousness in an area, goes a long way. This speaks towards the saltiness of a person. And, and we're going to get into that in a few weeks, talking about deeper into what it means to be salt actually in the world. But the context in that in light of a, a geographical area or in light of a people or a family or a group or whatever it is, that is, if there's people in that spot that are walking in right standing with God, God will hold off judgment for a time. Why? Because if those that are righteous are doing their job and living their life, there's hope for that area. There's hope for our country. There's hope for our nation. There's hope for us, not because it's just going to kind of magically appear. There's hope because the people of God are here. God's called us to live like that. The, the righteous are a preservative. The reason he stalls, the, the reason he waits, the reason he, he pauses on judgment is because there is still as we close this morning, that means the righteous people, those in right standing, will stick out. And that's the tough thing nowadays, is that we want as believers to stick in as much as possible. I don't want anyone to know this. I don't want anyone to know that. And see, that's the nature of salt and light. It's why Jesus says later, if the salt loses its salty nuts, what good is it? We're going to get into that in, in, in a few weeks, but this morning, the idea is that you and I are called to be salt in the, in the world. All of us have looked at the world and thought, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you act? Why don't you provide? Why don't you do something? This, this story helps address that question. It's not that God can't or doesn't or won't bring judgment, it's that there's time because there is still righteousness left on the planet. Because listen, the, the, there's hope because a little righteousness goes a long way. As the band comes forward this, this morning, 2,000 years after this moment, after this, this is terrible fire, 2,000 years after this moment comes this moment. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we find the church at this, at this time is struggling mightily. The church is starting to believe and wonder, is God actually going to act? Will there actually be anything that's going to happen or, or, or take place? Is, is, is God going to do something about sin? Will he ever do anything? Is it all just fairy tales? It's what you can find in the, the church as, as Peter is addressing, as he says these words in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is what? He is patient with you he doesn't want anyone to perish but have everyone come to repentance skip down to verse 15 bear in mind that our lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother paul also wrote to you that that wisdom that god gave him what this means from god's perspective is that your presence on that team matters You would bow your heads today and you would close your eyes. Your presence in your family, it matters. Your presence in that company that you feel that you are one of a thousand, that you feel, man, there's no one, there's nothing here, I'm struggling, I'm having a hard time. Your presence there matters. Your presence in that industry, it matters. Your presence in your home, it matters. Your presence in your world, it matters. Your presence in the coffee shop or whatever it is, it matters. When you are in right standing with God, you may not always get it right. You may not always get things perfect. You mess up sometimes. Sometimes you need your spouse to say, remember that message you preached last week. You may not always get it right, but you're committed. God sees you in that spot, and your presence there matters to him. It, it may not feel like it, but as long as there's righteous people in the place, there is hope. It's why when this, this lights me up, and heads are bowed and eyes are closed to f- focus in on this this morning. And this lights me up. It's why when when Jesus is, is teaching a crowd of people and Matthew chapter 5, a crowd of has-beens, a crowd of maybes, a crowd of people who are struggling, a crowd of people who have some given their entire life, a crowd of people who are working and, and, and trying and learning that it's not about working and trying, it's about giving their lives to him. It's a, this crowd of people that when Jesus says, you are the light's You are the salt of the earth that changed how they saw everything. Salt is a preservative and a little salt goes a long way. Let me tell you who you are. Jesus said, that crowd that day said, you think you have no influence? You feel as if no one cares about you, or no one sees you. You, you feel like you're you're just a mere Jew in a Roman machine. You're a lowly follower under the weight of the corrupt Pharisaical teaching. Let me tell you something. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Where you are, there is promise. Where you are, there is hope. Where you are, there's possibility. Where you are, God is willing to lay off the the judgment because he sees that there is hope in that place because you stand there, because you sit there this morning. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I'm not a a righteous person as you say. I I don't care, I'm not, I'm whatever it might be this morning. You don't come to Christ. Man, I'm glad you're here today because someone around you is. Someone around you has brought you today. Someone around you has spoken to you, and, and someone around you knows God, and you are preserved, and near the day of judgment is not here yet, and you're here, and today is the moment of, of, of choice. You can turn your life 180%. When God says, in, when, when Peter says in chap, first, second Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, But he wants no one to die, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. As eyes are closed, as heads are bowed this morning, I want to focus on that word repentance for a moment today. Because the word speaks and says that it's through repentance that we come to a place of righteousness before God. Repentance means to understand you don't have it, and to turn towards him. This morning, if you're here today, and you would say, Pastor, that's me, I, I, I'm not righteous, I've, I've missed the mark, I, I don't get it, I'm just not a Christian, but I think I need to change my life today. I, I wanna give my heart to him. The word says when you come to him in repentance, he forgives you, and he cleans you, and he, he washes you and makes you brand new. So that's you here today, I I wanna ask you that question, is today gonna be the final day for you? If it is, I'm gonna pray a prayer this morning, and I wanna ask you today, if that's you, to say, to pray with me. You can be quiet, you don't have to be loud, you can just pray with me this morning, and if that's you, I want you to pray with me. Jesus, I love you. I give you my life. From this day forward, I'm gonna be different. I promise to do things different. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for messing up. Thank you for holding off judgment for me. This morning I ask that you come into my life and clean me up. My promise for you is this, is that I will never be the same. I will live my life for you. I pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone says, Amen. Amen. We just stand across this room this morning and we're going to continue to have heads bowed, eyes closed. I want, you to, I want you to think this morning about this. And I want you to be impressed and left today with a simple truth. The simple truth is going to provide for us and pay for us the way so that in a few weeks we're going to get into the nitty gritty of what it means to be salt and what it means to be no longer salty. But today you have to know and hear, believer, if you're walking in right standing with God, you are here on purpose for a reason. As long as you're here, there's hope. God has shown that. God has given that as an example throughout Scripture. We've read it here today. When he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are a, pre- a preservative that where he's placed you and put you, he hasn't put you there on accidents. And you need to take that understanding and that knowledge and walk in it and let it change you. Let it become to you a different. Let it make you think and act and live and be a different person. Because of that fact, because of that truth today, you can walk with a spring in your step. You can walk differently because he has put you where he's put you. You are no longer the way you once were. You are now a child of him. And this morning, as we, we close this, this message out today, I want to encourage you. If God is, is ministering or, or challenging you in you, in that I, I want to challenge you to get something in your hands right now. and, and some, some struggle or, or difficulty where you're having a hard time seeing the points when it comes to your family or your job or, or whatever it might be. I want you to get that in your hand this morning. And I want you to remind yourself of this story. That a little salt goes a long way. And I want you to say, God, how is it in this situation in my workplace, in my family, in my relationship, in my home, in my job, in my friend circle, in whatever circle it might be that you're struggling with right now. God, what is it right now that I am placed there for? I give it to you. I pray this in your name.